When we celebrate Thanksgiving, we see that holiday as a holy day in which we, you know, give thanks to God for all that he's done for us. But may I just encourage you today to make sure that you add to that list of holidays the 4th of July because it really is a holy day. It really is a day in which God wrought miracles to give us this land that we live in. You know, why are you an American? Why were you born here? Some of you, why did you come here? And I believe that we are here in America. A lot of it has to do with the fact, not just because God wants to give us the creature comforts that this country has to offer, and not just the materialism, not the vanities of this land. I do believe that we are here in this country. We are here in America for the Almighty. We are here, I believe, as Christians, as missionaries sent from the Father to fight for the freedom that he has established. You know, when I think of freedom, and I think today that the study the Lord laid on my heart was the foundations of freedom, what do you think of? You know, when you think of freedom, I pray that you would know that the bottom line and the basis of all freedom is blood. It's blood. It's the blood of the 257,000 soldiers that died in the Revolutionary War. It's the blood of God. You see, the basis and the bottom line of all freedom is the blood. The core of this whole thing, the corazón, I call it, man, is courage. You see, when you look at this good land that we've been given, it's a good land that's been given to us by the Lord. And when you study the Independence Day, you know, it's really a cool story and you see it so clearly. You know, when we study Christmas, we look at Luke chapter 2, Matthew chapter 1, and we kind of see the series of events that led up to that. When we study Easter, you know, a lot of us here will go through the whole Passion Week and we kind of see some of the series of events that led up to that. And I think it would be good for us to do the same with Independence Day. Because when you look at the nation of Israel, we know that they were set free. They were delivered from the most powerful nation on earth at that time. And then they were led into the promised land. We call it the Exodus. Well, in America, we call what God has done the Nexodus. (laughs) How God really gave us the victory in those days. I don't know if you knew it. The tyranny and the monarchy and the cruelty of King George III, who was ruling over this nation as a colony, Uh, viciously and how God set us free from that to give us and establish a land that would be given to us by the Lord and clearly for the Lord and when you look at the series of events that led up to Independence Day I think it really helps us in many ways celebrate this holiday as a holy day and that if there's anyone here who is not a patriot You know, um, not that this country deserves it, but you are here in this country. You have been given the freedoms of this country. And I believe as an American, you have the responsibility as well as a Christian American to have a passion of patriotism for this great country that God has established. In my eyes, I see it second only to Israel in what the clarity of what God has done. And I think a lot of times we as Christians, we don't realize that. And especially in the days that we live in now. 
You know, we honor the office of presidency, but I'll be honest with you, we don't honor our president in the sense that this man has publicly said that this is not a Christian nation. You know, he said it, well, it's not a Christian nation. We are all Muslims and Jews and Buddhists and all these things. You know, and he could have worded it differently if he wanted to. He could have said we're a country that, you know, consists of different religions and there are Christians and there are Muslims. But no, as he meticulously and articulately wrote his speech, he said, we are not a Christian nation, which is not true. Because when you look at the Declaration of Independence, which was penned on July 2nd, 1776, when you look at the Constitution of the United States of America, you find that this country was founded and framed on the Judeo-Christian biblical values. When you look at the core of the Constitution and the Declaration of Independence, what you find is that our founding fathers pulled primarily from the writings of a man named John Locke, who was a British man, but in his little book, it's about an inch thick, he has 1,500 Bible references. And in that book, which we pulled from, as well as the preaching of the day, we have the framework and the foundation of this nation. A constitution that has existed for 234 years, which really is unparalleled. They call it the uh, exquisitive, what's that word? There's something about America that's unique because all other countries, the average change of constitution is about 30 to 40 years. But we've had the same constitution. Why? Because the constitution really that's been given to us by our creator. But what led up to that day? What led up to the Declaration of Independence? Well, we read in history, and like I shared with you earlier, a lot of the material I got today is from a book called The Light and the Glory by Peter Marshall and David Manuel, a great book. Some of the resources I also pulled from a man named David Barton. You can find his information at wallbuilders.com. And these are guys that God has raised up to remind us and to slap us and to wake us and say, hey, don't just give up on the country. We need to fight for it. And you see the series of events that led up to it. You see God's hand all over it. It's kind of like the children of Israel. God said, look at the way I've set you free. Never forget it. That'll help you in the promised land. I think we need to do the same as well. You know, when you look at the history of the move of independence in our country, a pivotal point was the appointment of a leader by the name of George Washington. He was appointed as leader of the commander and the army in America. When Washington first took over, uh, it was kind of interesting because he was stunned by the utter lack of discipline among the 13,000 troops casually encamped around Boston. Now, the uh, victory in Boston would be a pivotal victory, after which they would sign the Declaration of Independence. He said this, they had not the first idea of what it was to be a soldier. Neither did their officers. Indeed, the officers, Washington swiftly concluded, were the greatest problem. For almost all the militia companies were comprised of hometown units serving under their own officers. It was easy to see that an officer who had grown up with his men, who had farmed with his men, who had drunk with his men, who had voted with his men, was not likely to cut across old, deep friendships for the sake of enforcing discipline. 
Consequently, serious offenses received mild rebukes and minor offenses were altogether ignored. The resultant atmosphere at Cambridge was more like that of a jamboree than a military establishment. In other words, what I'm trying to say, because I know you're thinking, hey, this is going to be a history lesson. Yeah, it's a history lesson, okay? But what I'm trying to say is that they they were all messed up. And so what did God do? God raised up a leader. His name was George Washington. Kind of like in the nation of Israel, God would raise up a man named Moses, or then later a man named Joshua. Whenever God does a work, he raises up a leader with conviction. George Washington was that man. Now, Washington saw the condition, and he was literally shocked by it all. He had not sought this assignment. He had only accepted it because his colleagues had pressed it upon him. And there were several times when he would write to his wife, Martha, or he would confess to his brother, Jack, that he wanted to split, he wanted to quit, that he would leave it all and prefer to go and live in his land in the Western Reserve. You know, and we all have that option. If you want to, you can live your own life. You can do your own thing. Although you see the need and you sense the responsibility and the call to give it all, if you want to, you can choose your own life. George Washington was at that crossroads. But he realized this, and he wrote this down. Leaving was impossible, and he knew it. Why? Because he was a man under authority. He was a man under God's authority, he said. And he said that he knew his life was not his own. And so he was willing to do whatever he felt God would have him to do, regardless of what it would cost him in reputation or popularity. You see, and we begin to learn lessons from history. We begin to learn one lesson that when our country experienced victory, when we went and we declared that declaration of independence, It was a godly man of conviction who felt that he had the responsibility to obey God and not live his own life that wrought the victory for this country. And so what did he do? He cleaned house. He demoted many of the officers and promoted the ones he knew were real soldiers. And then when he finally took office, listen to the letter that he sent out. It said, the general most earnestly requires and expects a due of observance of those articles of war established by the government of the army, which forbid profane cursing, swearing, and drunkenness. He said, listen, you guys, I don't want to hear you cuss anymore. I don't want to hear you swear anymore, and you guys are forbidden to get drunk. I mean, he was now lifting up the bar and the standards. And then this is what he said next. He says, and in like manner, he requires and expects all officers and soldiers not engaged in actual duty, a punctual attendance of divine services to implore the blessing of heaven upon the means used for safety and defense. In other words, he said, you got to go to church and you got to get there on time. That's what he said, punctual. That's what he said. You see, and when you look at the leader of this land and the way that God used the whole 4th of July and the Declaration of Independence that we celebrate today, you find that it was a man who feared the Lord, a man who was a committed Christian, a man, when you really look at history, 
you know, that was used by God and raised up by God to lead us to that place. And so the summer began, discipline and more discipline. That was the rule that summer. And men learned how to march and how to drill, and more importantly, they learned how to obey. And an astonishing transformation took place in the Continental Army. The army began to look like an army. And all, except for a few officers, gave the credit to their leader, George Washington, who immediately gave all the glory to God. You see, and a lot of times, you know, I don't know about you, but you don't really hear stuff like that. You know, we're like the 4th of July, it's about fireworks. It's about watermelon, you know. It's about carne asada or whatever the case may be, man. You know what? And, you know, praise God for those things, you know. But when I think of fireworks, uh, this, it'll never be the same for me. I think of, the, of it this way, fireworks. Fireworks. The fire of a pure life. It works. The fire of the Lord leading you. The pillar of fire by night. It works. You know, and maybe there's a George Washington here. Maybe there's an Esther here who will save her nation. But God is calling us with that commitment even to this country that we just happen to live in. We've got to have that vision. George Washington was a man of conviction. They knew it was the Lord. Throughout America, certain committed ministers were reminding their congregations that it was only through God's continuing mercy that America had fared as well as she had. And they said this, that repentance as well as strength of arms would decide the outcome. And the same is true today. You're like, well, how can I make a difference? You know, should I, you know, muster up an army like, you know, Brother George did? And, you know, is that what I need to do? And, and the answer, no, I don't know if that's necessarily the, the answer. God will give you what I call the divine details on your part in this whole thing. But we do have a part. It begins with prayer. It begins with a heart of repentance. God said, if my people who are called by my name will humble themselves, turn from their sins, repent. He says, and I'll, I'll hear their prayers. I'll, I'll heal the land. You know, in those days, it's kind of interesting. You wonder, well, who framed all this? And I already shared with you that they pulled a lot from John Locke's books, a British Christian theologian, politician. Uh, much of it's from there. Um, but a lot of the things that they came up with in the Constitution, you can literally go back in history and find were found within the sermons of the preachers of that day. Now, in that day, the sermons were all written out. Every single one of them were written out. They didn't just have a few notes here and there. They didn't just kind of speak. That came later. But in these days, all the sermons were written out. And so they were there and readily accessible. And from that, the Christians would pull, the politicians would pull. One of the preachers said this, Our degeneracies, we must conclude from the light of nature and revelation, have contributed to bring us under the present calamities. We are now in an unusual way called upon to wash ourselves, to make ourselves clean, to put away the evil of our doings from before our eyes, to cease to do evil, to learn to do well, and seek every kind of judgment. In most of these sermons, not only was there a strong emphasis on the need for individual repentance before God, 
But there was also a clear call on Americans to renew their covenant commitment to one another. And I know a lot of times we don't have that team mentality. You know, one of the things that was pressed a lot in the church, and I think it's still there, is a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. And that is true, that we are all called to have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. But that by no means clears you of your responsibility to the congregation, that as a member of the body of Christ, there's to be a commitment, and also your responsibility to the nation. And that's important for us to have. The theologians of these days, they understood it very well. You see, the Lord gave us this country. Today on the 4th of July, it's kind of cool that we can stop and we can look back and we can acknowledge his hand in this whole thing. He said, from here to here, this is where I want you to be. Now, it's kind of interesting. When you study history, you find that America also wanted the northern land. They wanted Canada. And so they began to pursue Canada. They began to get aggressive in their pursuits of that nation. Uh, they had a general. His name was Philip Schuyler. He was the primary man leading that way. But they also had a man under him by the name of Benedict Arnold. He was leading a 1,000 men up the Kennebec River. And one of the things you'll find is this, and I just want to make the, mention this by way of contrast, that if God is for us, who can be against us, right? But if God is not for us, I don't care who you are, I don't care how good you are, how strong you are, it will not happen. And you see, the Lord had plans for America. The Lord had different plans for Canada. And so they tried their hardest, man, to conquer that nation. They tried their hardest to win the battles up north. But first of all, the element of surprise was gone because word had, you know, kind of slipped out that they were coming. That was one of their strongest elements. It was gone. Secondly, uh, the weather did not cooperate with them. As a matter of fact, the weather was so bad that the waters went up 10 feet in the river. They then crafted boats, but they did it out of green wood, which then leaked, and they lost a lot of their quantities of provisions and ammunitions. And so we see that as they were journeying towards Canada, nothing was going right. Things were so bad that by October 25th, the men were eating their candles to survive. Think about that. I'm sure it wasn't gum. I'm sure it was worse than that, man. After that, things got so bad that they left. They then ate their dogs, which I'm sure wasn't too bad. It probably tasted okay. <laughs> but then they ate their shaving cream, their lip salve. They ate their leather boots, and they ate their boxes, their cartridge boxes. Things did not go good for them as they traveled up the river. As they went, uh, things got even worse. They were struck by smallpox. And then when they came upon the spring, uh, the arrival of two warships uh, uh, came their way, and they finally gave up, and they surrendered. Now, to read the story of the invasion of Canada is to experience a wrenching tragedy. For these men had given everything in total unhesitating commitment, and for nothing. It was enough to break a patriot's heart. And this is what the writer says. 
How often do we ourselves pour all our energies and resources into something which seems so right or so good only to see it come to nothing? Bitter and frustrated, it might not occur to us that the reason is that no matter how noble it appears or how sincere our commitment, it had been totally out of the will of God. You see, and I mention that to tell you that, yes, the Americans were you know, committed and there was that desire and God did have his hand on his country, but he said, this is what I want you to do and nothing more. God gets all the glory for the victory that we experienced. See, we need to make sure that we're on God's side. You know, as Abraham Lincoln later would say, Sir, my concern is not whether God is on our side. My great concern is that I be on God's side, right? And so after that defeat, they called, Congress called for a day of fasting, humiliation, and prayer on May 17th. And if I can just pause there for a moment, I would encourage you to have that same calling upon your life. When you see the crisis that we face as a country, please don't think that your seeking of the Savior will not make a difference in the land. And so I encourage you to join me. May we have a heart of fasting, humiliation, and prayers for the land because this land is the land of of the Lord. You know, we see over and over again the preachers of the day had that same vision. Uh, one guy said this Well, we give praise to God, the supreme disposer of all events, for his interposition on our behalf. Let us guard against the dangerous error of trusting in or boasting of an arm of flesh. I look upon ostentation and confidence to be a sort of outrage upon providence. And when it becomes general and infuses itself into the spirit of a people, it is a forerunner of destruction. But observe that if your cause is just, if your principles are true, if you are in God's will, and if your conduct is prudent, you need not fear the multitude of opposing hosts. What follows from this? That he is the best friend to American liberty who is most sincere and active in promoting true and undefiled religion and who sets himself with the greatest firmness to bear down on profanity and immorality of every kind. Whoever is an avowed enemy of God, I scruple not to call him an enemy to his country. And you go on and on and you see how the preachers, how the people knew that if their country would win, that they had to place God first that they had to turn from their sins, from their immorality, from their wicked ways, so that God would place his hand upon the heart of the country again. And so you see the Lord stirring things up. And so George Washington, he's heading over towards this battle. It's called the Dorchester Heights Battle. It was there in the surroundings of Boston. That battle would be the pivotal battle. Now, as he's on his way, a few things were concerning to him. Number one, they had no gunpowder. Number two, they had no soldiers. <laughs> Number three, the weather. And there were different things that were kind of getting in the way. But then all of a sudden, boom, the gunpowder came in. The soldiers came in. And the weather began to cooperate as well. And they went and they began to set things up for the battle at Dorchester Heights. You know, one of the guys in writing about this, the British 
soldier, the British commander, the opposing force. He said this about the Americans and their advance. He said it was amazing that nothing went wrong. It says at the dawn, the reaction of the British was stunned, incredulity. Captain Charles Stewart wrote that the fortifications appeared more like magic than the work of human beings. That's the British, the British officers saying that. And the British Army's engineer, Captain Archibald Robertson, said a most astonishing night's work that must have employed from 15,000 to 20,000 men. Vice Admiral Molyneux Schultham informed Hal that he could not possibly remain in the harbor under the fire of the batteries from Dorchester Neck. And Hal himself could only say, the rebels have done more in one night than my whole army would have done in months. How do you think that happened? It was totally the Lord. And you read about this in the Old Testament, how huh? you read about how God would give Israel these great you know, military victories. And you even read it about Israel in their six-day war. Please understand, Christians, today that that's how God founded this country. He did it. He did the work. He supernaturally intervened and blessed us. As a matter of fact, when you look at this whole thing, you know, when the Americans went in and they kind of went undercover that night and they established themselves, the British honor would demand that they immediately retaliate. And so they gave orders for two forces of 2,000 men each to be assembled for embarkation on the next tide. And down to the longboats went the files of red-coated infantry. In other words, the British said, okay, you took over quietly. We're going to come. We will counterattack. And they had the greatest navy in the world, right? But look what happened. It says, but as they waited for the tide, a storm came up out of nowhere. It was no ordinary storm. A wind more violent than any I had ever heard, wrote one British soldier. Approaching near hurricane velocity, it drove thick snow laterally across the water, rendering any amphibious operation out of the question. You see, God had intervened and God had given them the victory. You know, later we see letters from John Adams, and I wish I had time to read all these things to you, but as they were there in the thick of the victory, there was not a soul who survived who denied that it was God. They knew it was his hand. You know, and when you look at this whole thing, it just blesses your heart. You know, Samuel Adams wrote, and my son pointed this out to me today. He said, Dad, it's kind of sad. They named a beer after Samuel Adams. I'm all, yeah, I don't understand that. <laughs> and I think they named a beer after, was it John Adams? I, I don't know. There are a couple of guys, and I'm like, man... These guys would have never, ever put up with it. These guys love the Lord. Samuel Adams, look what he wrote. He says, We have this day restored the sovereign to whom alone men ought to be obedient. He reigns in heaven, and from the rising to the setting sun, may his kingdom come. You see, yeah, when you study this, and when you realize this, and I think... That when you look at the children of Israel, when they went into the promised land, you know, one of the responsibilities that the generations had was to tell the next generation of what God had done. And, you know, and I think in many ways we have failed. 
I have failed. We have failed to tell how God is the one who has given us this land. And now we are an American, you know, by the Almighty. And what he wanted to do was he wanted to raise up a nation that would send out missionaries, that would be a light to the whole wide world. And in looking at that, we find that God has established this country. And that's why it's so cool to make this holiday a holy day. And to say, Lord, if you started it, Lord, please finish it. Lord, we turn back to you as a nation. Lord, you know, we pray for our president, man, that he would get saved. We pray that you should rock his world. And, and, you know, sometimes I pray for the president and I wonder, Lord, why isn't he sick or something? You know, I'm just messing around. No, <laughs> you know, it's like I know there are millions of Christians praying for him. And, you know, I don't know. There's a really cool scripture and they quote it in the book of Acts. It's taken out of the Psalms. It says, let another take his office. And sometimes people like to pray that prayer as well. But who knows, you know, maybe the Lord is judging us because the bottom line is we can't blame it all on him. Huh? Although it just, it just uh, gets us so upset when we see him uh, mocking the Bible, when we see him making such ludicrous statements that this is not a Christian nation, when you see some of the decisions that he's making, turning his back on Israel. But we need to take personal responsibility as well. Maybe you'll be an Esther. Maybe you'll be a Mordecai. Maybe you'll be a George Washington or a John Adams or a John Locke. Maybe God will use your life. We could say, here am I. Lord, do with me as you wish. You know, I know we always have that decision to make. George Washington said, I want to go home. I want to go camp, you know, my land and work the land and, you know, just have my own life. And he made a decision not to. When you read Psalm 147, verse 20, I think it's applicable to us as a people. It says, he has not dealt thus with any nation. You know, and there he's referring to Israel and he's referring to the fact how God, man, gave his special attention to Israel. But I think for us, the same is true. He has not dealt thus with any nation the way that he has dealt with us. And I think we need to come to grips with that. I mean, we have certain, you know, privileges that we've been given as a people. And yet we know that God is over all the nations. Psalm, 1, Psalm 46, verse 10 says, Be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. The Bible says, For the kingdom is the Lord's, and he rules over the nations. And so God is the God of all nations. Now, one thing to take into consideration when you study the Bible is that theologically speaking, you know, all nations will be judged on earth. Okay, that doesn't happen with individuals. Not all individuals will be judged on earth. Some individuals will live a wicked life, but they'll die, you know, wealthy and they die in their sleep and everything seemed to go perfect for them. They don't get judged on earth. But they do get judged after they die. They end up in hell, right? We read that in Luke chapter 16. But for nations, every nation will be judged on earth. And that's what you read in the scriptures. And when you see how God is over the nations, Psalm 4610, it says, Be still and know that I am God. But as God is there and God in his providence is ruling over the nations, a couple of words I want to give you today. Number one is providence. Number two 
is diligence. Don't then just sit on your hand and say, well, God is provident. God will do whatever he wants to do. No, God in his providence and his sovereignty works within the cooperation of man's responsibility. And as we you know, rise to the occasion and fight the good fight, then we might have hope for this land. Are you a patriot? Some people are like, no, you know what, I, I fly another flag, you know. You know, and I'm not saying you have to lose your racial identity, but you're in America for a reason. God has brought you here. Some were born here. Some God brought you here. And you know, if God calls you out to a different country one day, that's cool. But you are to bloom where you're planted. You are to be a light to this country. And so we need to be patriots. We need to know that we can make a difference in this country that he's called us to. You know, Esther, chapter 10, verse 3, talks about Mordecai the Jew, who was second to King Ahasuerus, it says, and was great among the Jews and well-received by the multitude of his brethren. It says right here, seeking the good of his people and speaking peace to all his countrymen. And I think that's cool. Mordecai was definitely a man of conviction. I, I consider him to be a great, great man in the Bible. And it says right there that he sought the peace of his countrymen and he sought the good of his people. Paul the Apostle loved his countrymen so much. He said in Romans 9 verse 3, I could wish that I myself were cursed from Christ for my brethren, my countrymen, according to the flesh. And again, contextually speaking, we know that he had a heart for the Jews. But I think practically speaking, maybe it might benefit us to have the same heart. Can't give up on this country. We've got to fight for it. We've got to pray for it. We've got to know that the Lord established this nation. Today we celebrate the independence, but not just with watermelon, garden asada, and fireworks. With a renewed commitment to the calling that we have in this country. You could have been born anywhere, but you were born here. Because if not, then God will have to enforce his laws. The Bible says he will bless nations that seek him. And he will curse the nations that don't. And how much more the nations that know the will of God and stray from it. You know, the Bible says in Deuteronomy 28.3, Blessed shall you be in the city, and blessed shall you be in the country. Psalm 33.12 says, Blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord, the people he has chosen as his own inheritance. I love that. Blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord. Right? And there's that covenant name, Yahweh. So beautiful. Proverbs 14.34 says, Righteousness exalts a nation. But sin is a reproach to any people. You see, righteousness exalts a nation. When we begin to live the life personally, and that spills over into our family, then the community, it might not end there. It might go all the way to Washington, D.C. You see, that's our hope. That's our prayer. Only because we know that God started this whole thing. Righteousness exalts a nation, but sin shames it. See, there's the blessings, and then there's the cursings. Deuteronomy 28.16 says, Cursed shall you be in the city, and cursed shall you be in the country. Psalm 9.17 says, The wicked shall be turned into hell, and all the nations that forget God. 
And isn't that a description of where we're at? Man, we need to pray. God, I hope it's not too late. You know, we have that certain responsibility, and I pray that we would all catch that vision. You know, I pray that you love your country. I pray that you're not like a Jehovah Witness who who won't even pledge allegiance to the flag, and even though they enjoy the privileges of all the freedoms they've been given, you know, there's got to be a certain element of commitment, of course, first to God, but there has to be that calling of conviction in our life. But we know ultimately that this is not the end, and we'll close with this, you guys. Although we have a responsibility to fight for our family, you know, in heaven you're not going to be married. And so, you know, your, your wife is going to be your sister. You can still be good friends. <laughs> but the family will end, and the countries will end, and all that kind of stuff will end. And one day we'll be in the real country. As a matter of fact, Hebrews 11, verse 6 says, But now they desire a better, that is a heavenly country. And so we have that that even supersedes all these things. Which leads us now to the freedom, not necessarily nationally, but now let's talk a little bit about the freedom personally. Are you free? Are you free? How many of you here are free? Is that a curiosity? Do you know what the foundation of that freedom is? Do you know what the bottom line basis of that freedom is? I said it earlier. It starts with a B. It's blood. The blood. The blood of the soldiers and the blood of our soldier, Jesus Christ. And he set us free from the penalty of sin. He set us free from the power of sin. How many of you here ever spent time in jail? Just, no, I'm just joking. I won't put you guys up there. <laughs> Man, I, I've never done that really. One time I was arrested and I did spend like maybe five minutes in a cell and it was weird. But imagine that, not having that freedom and, and Christ, Christ set us free, right? We know that. We read that in the scriptures. We have to know today that the freedom we've been given has been a gift from God. Psalm 146.7 says that God executes justice for the oppressed he gives food to the hungry, and the Lord gives freedom to the prisoners. You see, it comes from God. As a matter of fact, let's go real quick, and we'll close over in John chapter 8 and talk a little bit about the freedom we have personally. In John chapter 8, in verse 31, it says, And Jesus said to the Jews who believed him, If you abide in my word, you are my disciples. Indeed, and you shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. If you abide in my word, and I think a lot of you here are trying your best to do that. You want to learn the word, and you want to live the word. You want the word of God to go deep in your heart, because uh, you have a heart for him. And it's so cool. And that brought you salvation, which is an element of freedom. And that continues to bring you sanctification. And so he said, if you abide in my word, you're my disciples indeed. You shall know the truth and the truth shall notice it says, make you free. It makes you free. That's what the truth does. And so they answered him, we are Abraham's descendants and have never been in bondage to anyone. How can you say you will be made free? You see, they didn't realize that as a non-Christian, as a non-God follower, 
they were actually, in one sense, the descendants of the devil. And a lot of times people, when they're not really living for the Lord, sold out and surrendered, completely committed to Jesus Christ, they don't even realize the fact that they're in bondage. And, you know, you just have to ask them a couple of questions. Can, can you, do you seek the Lord consistently? No, I don't. I try, but I don't. You can't because you got shackles on your soul. And you can't stop the pornography, you can't stop the lust, you can't stop the drinking, you can't stop the things that go on in the dark places of your own bedroom. You can't stop the things that you're doing because you are in bondage. You're a prisoner. They didn't even know it. They said, ah, oh, we're Abraham's descendants who've never been in bondage to anyone. Their eyes were so shut, they didn't realize that at the very moment they were under the bondage of Rome. It was really bad. And so the Lord said to them, in verse 34, Most assuredly, verily, verily, amen, amen, I say to you, whoever commits sin is a slave of sin. And a slave does not abide in the house forever, but a son abides forever. You see, there might be some of you here today who are persistently and consistently living in sin. And what that shows is you're not a son. You're a slave. And Jesus said, here's the thing. That if you're a slave, you don't live in the house. If you're a slave, if sin is over you persistently and consistently, and there you are defiantly continuing to live in that sin, then that right there is evidence that you're not really a Christian. And you won't go to heaven. You see, we've got to know the truth. We've got to know what the Bible teaches doesn't matter if you prayed that prayer one day or you went forward one day. A faith that doesn't change my behavior will never change my destiny. God wants to set you free. And sin, sin, no one here, I don't care who you are, I don't care how long you've been going to church, no one here should have sin ruling over them. See? Very important because you don't have assurance when that happens. You see, the Lord makes it real clear right there. And he says in verse 36, Therefore, if the Son makes you free, you shall be free indeed. You shall be really free. Really free. Sin doesn't rule over you. I mean, yeah, we stumble sometimes. But, you know, you have the power to say no. You have the grace to say yes. You have the choice. You have the option now to walk as a Christian. And that's really what the whole freedom and liberty and celebration is all about. You know, I thank God that I, I, I didn't live in, you know, a, a, a monarchy country or, you know, a communist country or, or, you know, places like that. I wonder what it would be like living in such a land. You know, I thank God that I live in the United States of America and at the age of 23, he set me free. Thank God for that. And today, I'm going to do my best to celebrate my freedom. And to raise up and to rise up and uh, embrace the calling. You know, the calling for my family, yes. The calling for the congregation and the community, yes. But now I think the Lord today has given me a broader vision I think the calling for my country. 
God, raise up George Washingtons. God, raise up Mordecai's. God, raise up Esther's for such a time as this. Got to have, you know, a big vision. Because God's a big God, huh? He's a big God. He really is. Let me share with you two things in closing. Number one, stand first. Stand first. First of all, make a decision that Jesus Christ would be your Lord. If you're here today and you don't know the Lord, if you're here today and you're not a Christian, you're not even sure where you, where you are, you know, you got to first make that decision to follow him. You know, there shouldn't be any doubt in your heart. There really shouldn't be any doubt in your heart when you're a Christian. And so today, uh, you got to know that Jesus died for you on that cross. And what you got to do is know that he then put in a grave, he rose the third day, and he conquered death. And what you need to do is be willing to turn from all your sins. You can't hang on to anyone, any one of those sins anymore. you got to be willing today to turn from all your sins. And he'll help you. He'll help you. But you got to be willing to turn from all your sins and trust in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. So first, make a stand first. But then after that, when you become a Christian, you stand fast. You stand fast. In Galatians chapter 5, verse 1, it says, Stand fast, therefore, in the liberty by which Christ has made us free, and do not be entangled again with a yoke of bondage. You know, sometimes when you become a Christian, you might then fall into another type of bondage, which is legalism. And when you read the book of Galatians, Paul the Apostle fought tooth and nail against legalism. And you've got to make sure that you don't then fall into a different type of cage. And you put yourself in a cage. And you put your kids in a cage. Don't get me wrong. We have been set free from sin, not to sin. But make sure that you don't take men's rules and regulations that originate the traditions of men and then elevate them to the truth. You've got to be so careful. For example, yesterday when we went street witnessing, I talked to a lady. And, uh, you know, we were agreeing on a lot of things. Uh, we were talking in the 99-cent store. It's kind of cool. And anyways, eventually the lady said, yeah, and at my church, all the ministers wear suits. We would never let them go out in shorts and a T-shirt. And I said, wow. I said, okay, we don't agree on this one, man. Because <laughs> it just so happened that I was wearing shorts and a T-shirt. <laughs> And I said, you know what? That's not biblical. And I share with her, let me, 1 Samuel 16, 7, it says that the Lord does not see as man sees. For man looks at the outward appearance, but God looks at the heart. You know, and if you want to wear a suit here, by all means, go for it. You know, some people say, I like to dress up for the Lord. And if you want to wear a t-shirt and shorts here, that's okay too. But let's all make our hearts right. Because that's what the Lord is looking at. Now, of course, we need to dress with modesty. And girls, you know what that means. God knows what that means. But let's make sure that we don't then get entangled again to a yoke of bondage. It's so important that we have this understanding of the great freedom that God has given us. I love what Stephen Curtis Chapman says. I've been set free he says to run through the fields of forgiveness and grace. And I can just visualize him running through that and saying, Lord, lead me. And he does. 
And so I encourage you today to know this. Four words. Providence, diligence, repentance leads to independence. Remember, man, that's the way it works. And today when you're watching those fireworks and you're seeing all those things explode, remember this, that fire works, that fire does work, that when you and I are on fire for the Lord, living a life of purity, living that life of being led by that fire, that pillar of fire by night, fire works and God will change you God will change your family. God will change the community. And God has the power and the potential to change our country. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Lord, thank you so much for your love and grace. Thank you so much for allowing us to be here today. Lord, I pray that you would bless uh, your people here. I pray if there are any that don't know you, that today by your Holy Spirit, Lord, they would come to you. And Lord, they would embrace you as the Savior of their life. Thank you so much for the work you're doing. Let this holiday be what I believe it's intended to be, a holy day. Let it be a day of reflection upon the amazing work that God has done. I love you, Lord, and I thank you. In Jesus' name, amen.